Good morning, everyone. What a pleasure to be with you today. Praise the Lord for his goodness to us all. Uh, the midweek and the Friday studies will still be uh, off this week. And uh, just a plug for the sound team, if you would uh, like to pitch in with the words, there's a need there. So uh, just advancing them. You can talk to Paul afterwards. Uh, so please consider that. He's one manning it right now. So uh, man or woman would be perfectly adequate, trained by our staff. So thank you for that, Paul. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us all. Thank you for your grace, that you are a healer, that you are working, that even when we don't see it, you are doing your your awesome work in our lives, and forgive us, Lord, when we don't appreciate it, when we'd like things to remain as they are, we'd like to stay as we were, and thank you that you want to change us, you want to make us more like you, to be yielded and surrendered to your will, that we would desire your will, seek you, and to do it, and thank you that through you we can do all things, because it's you who strengthens us. Thank you that you are faithful, that you are the God who reigns on high, and that you sit enthroned in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister your truth to our lives and that we would be changed. We would be transformed as you renew us in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Genesis chapter 41, if you'll turn there. I think if we would boil down the pursuit of many people, it's to be set for life. And when I say set for life, I'm limiting it to things of this world, uh, that people want to have their needs and desires met, they want to feel secure about their future. They want to know that their superannuation is enough. Uh, like the rich man in the parable Jesus told, it's like when those barns are filled, you want to be able to say, well, let's knock those down and build bigger and better barns. Let's have plenty for the future so that we can be well cared for, so that we can buy not only what we need, but what we want. And we don't have to think about where the money is coming from because we have it, and we can go where we want, we can do what we want, and we're set for life, the life that we want to live. It's an attractive idea to, to be able to buy what you need, to acquire what you want, and to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Years ago in the States, the Ronco Rotisserie. Did that make it over here at all? But anyway, it was this, uh, this desktop, this, this appliance that was supposed to be just this life-changing thing. You're maybe not set for life, but you could just, it was selling more than, than just an appliance because it was selling the set it and forget it. That you can just set this thing. You may not be set for life, but you can be set for a delicious rotisserie meal with little effort on your part. You just put it in there. You can do anything. You don't have to be focused on it, but you can be enjoying it tonight. So there's that dream, right? But really, being set for life is a mirage. Things happen. There's unexpected events. There's shocking illnesses. There are surprises <laughs> Life and prosperity on earth is not certain, but there are things that are certain, like death, taxes, and judgment day. Those are givens. You cannot escape those. And so it's not the reliability of our appliances or the quality of our meals that we find security or rest for our souls, but it's remembering who our Savior is, what he has done to purchase us, how he loves us, and seeking Jesus who is our life. It's in him those things are found. 
not in the things he gives us. So previously in our study of Genesis, God gave Joseph the interpretation of the butler and the baker. And within three days, the interpretations proved correct. The butler was restored to his position and the chief baker was hanged. And Joseph, before he left, said, will you please put a word with me, word for me with Pharaoh, because you can, he can get me out of this place. I haven't done anything to deserve being in prison. And it says in Genesis 40, 23, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So day after day passed, no call from Pharaoh. Months, years passed. There was no release date. He's just there perpetually. He's in prison. He's in the dungeon. He was forgotten by the butler, but he had not forgotten God. And God certainly had not forgotten him. Genesis 41, verse 1. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. So chronicling the, the story of Joseph, at 17 years old, he was sold as a slave. He was in Egypt for 11 years in the house of Potiphar. Then he was unjustly jailed for two full years. And I imagine if Joseph had his way, he would have been released the day after the butler. Like the word would have come from Pharaoh, oh yeah, this guy, he's, he's unjustly imprisoned, set him free. He's a good guy. But no, that's not God's plan. David wrote in Psalm 31:15, "My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me." Isn't it true that in times of distress and trouble, we want a quick escape? We just want to be out of there. We don't want to deal with it anymore. Like we want to to we're in pain, we want the pain to stop. We're in trouble, we want the trouble to end. We want our circumstances to change. But God wants to use those things to change us, to make us more like him. And regardless of our present circumstances or the future, how it looks bleak or difficult, God is a constant source of peace for us when we look to him. Because we realize he is in control. He is God. And there's no stopping his hand. That our peace isn't contingent on circumstances, but on God and his loyal love to us, that he loves us. After two full years, Pharaoh has this notable dream. And it starts off very picturesque and lovely. He's by the bank of the Nile. These seven well-fed cows come out of the water and they, they're grazing in the meadow. And then suddenly, these very ugly, gaunt cows come out, thin and sickly, and they ate up the, the good cows, the healthy ones. And then he wakes up. Whoa, that was weird. Verse 5, he slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprung up after them, and the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Pharaoh falls back asleep again. He dreams not of 
cannibal cows, but seven heads of grain on one stalk. So this is like a good harvest, very fruitful. And suddenly there's seven thin heads. They're blighted. They are like uh, sandblasted by a dust storm as they would have in, those, in that area. Uh, a strong east, dry wind, and those seven thin heads devoured the seven full ones. And he wakes up again. Now, most of the dreams I have, I can't remember. Like, I'm like, I know I dreamed something. I have no idea what it is. But Pharaoh, he remembered them, and he thought about them, and the next morning he was troubled by them. So he summoned, summoned all the priests and the magicians, all these professional dream experts to hear his dream, but not one could interpret it for him. Now, Egyptian culture, uh, it was steeped in metaphysical, occultic, and esoteric rituals and practices. And it was believed that dreams were a way that the gods could commune or communicate with men, that they could give a good or a bad message, and it could be a directive or show future events. And they actually had temples that people would go into where there would be priests who would speak as an oracle to explain their dream and basically tell them what it meant and what they were supposed to do. So Pharaoh, he's got all these experts, but he's in the dark. He has no understanding of what this dream means. Pharaoh is somebody that I would say was set for life. He was a man who would think, well, he's got so much power and money and authority. Pharaoh owned all the land. Everything was his. People were just living in his land. He had taxes. He could wage war. He had power over life and death. He made the laws. He was a monarch, yet he's troubled by things that he thought about while dreaming on luxurious Egyptian linen, right? He's in this beautiful bed, but he's troubled. God's so great that he can use the smallest thing to trouble the mighty and to bring to pass his good purposes, like generous provision and salvation. Like that was God's plan, but this is how it began. It began with this dream and Pharaoh being troubled about it. Think about Haman. Haman was second to the king in the Media and Persia empire. And he was troubled. You know what troubled him? There was one Jewish man who refused to bow the knee when he walked by. That was it. He's got money. He's got power. He's got, he's friends with the king. He can go to the king anytime. But there's one guy that just won't bow. And he's like, ugh. And because of that man not bowing, he took action to destroy all the Jews. And that resulted in his own destruction, the destruction of his house, the deliverance of the Jews, the salvation of the Jews, and then the promotion of Mordecai into his job. So God was working at something and he used one man not bowing on the street to do this incredible thing of saving his people. It's nothing for God to impact someone's life with a dream. The most powerful person is vulnerable before the king of kings who can speak to their heart, who can trouble them over a little thing and cause them to accomplish his purposes. And there may be people in our lives that we have written off trying to convince of their need for Jesus or the truth of the scripture. And because we can't and we haven't for decades, we figure, well, maybe God can't either. But you know, God is almighty. Let's not forget this, that he can use a dream. He can use a person who refuses to bow. He can use an illness, a sentence spoken by a child that can change someone's future. 
because it's part of God's plan in his time. He is almighty. Because he, don't think God's weak because he uses the weak to do his will. Genesis 41, verse 9, Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Pharaoh's inability to find this interpreter, I wonder if they were having a conversation, like he's bringing him a drink. He's like, man, I've talked to everybody, and I still can't figure out what, this, what these dreams mean. And the butler pipes up. It was probably an uncomfortable subject for him because it, went, it was dealing with his own past. He's like, I remember how I made mistakes, and I was in prison along with the chief baker, and we both had dreams on the same night. And there was this Hebrew young man there who interpreted our dreams, and they both came true. He was able to accurately interpret them. And while he was the messenger, look at how he speaks of him. He ascribes authority to Joseph. He says, what he said happened, that he restored, he restored me to my office, and he hanged the baker. But of course, it wasn't Joseph's doing. It was God. He was merely the messenger speaking forth God's wisdom through God's insight and power. It was not of Joseph. It was God. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can interpret a dream, understand a dream, to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. At Pharaoh's word, two years later, he is summoned from prison. He's brought out of the dungeon. I love the Bible's historical accuracy shining here because it says Joseph shaved in preparation for this. Really, Egypt was the first shaving culture where they designed razors and they would shave their whole body. They would shave their whole body, even their heads, men and women, and they would wear wigs. And it was like high society, you cut off your hair. You would shave your hair. The priests, I read, they would shave their whole body every three days. So uh, the wealthy, they would have live-in barbers who would cut their hair. And people, other people, the common folk, would have just the street barber that they would rely on to cut their hair. So he is brought out of prison. He's shaved. He is brought before Pharaoh, who says, I had a dream. No one can interpret it. I heard you can understand and interpret dreams. And in doing so, he dangles this before Joseph that he could take credit. Like, yes, I have skill in interpreting dreams. Many of the dreams have come true. He doesn't say that. He says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And I looked in various translations. The NIV, it says, Joseph said, I cannot do this. New Living Translation, it is beyond my power to do this. So he's like, it's not in me. I can't do this. It's impossible for me, but God will give an answer of peace. So in knowing God, Joseph knew the all-powerful, all-knowing God 
who created mankind, who rules in heaven, who has authority and power over dreams. And he had said in Genesis 48, do not interpretations belong to God. Now you likely have never been put on the spot before a monarch to interpret the dream. Like I've had dreams, tell me what they are. But you know, God delights to put his children in situations every day that are impossible. He asks us to do things that we cannot do ourselves all the time. One extreme example is David with Goliath. Before the boxing match or the MMA, they have the tail of the tape, they have their reach, they have their weight. Well, Saul looks at the tail of the tape between David and Goliath. And he's like, Goliath has the advantage. He's got the size, the experience, the weapons, the armor, an undefeated record. David, you cannot go up against him. He's a warrior from his youth and you're but a youth. You have no experience. But what he overlooked was that God was with him, that God would help him. God would give him the victory. There were 5,000 hungry men with their families and Jesus commanded his disciples saying, you give them something to eat. And they're like, what? A year's worth of wages won't even feed this gathering and you're telling us to feed them all? All we have is a lad's lunch, five loaves and two fish. That's it. And you're telling us to feed them all. Well, guess what? They did it. Because when they committed that lad's lunch into the hands of Jesus, it says he, he blessed it, he broke it, he had them sit the people down, he distributed it to his disciples, who handed it to the people until they ate to the full. Again, them doing an impossible thing because God told them to, and Jesus helped them. David was not able to beat Goliath by himself. The disciples were not able to feed 5,000 but with God, all things are possible. Turn in your Bibles to what Paul learned in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. And know that what we're going to read here is at the same level of miraculous as a shepherd boy beating a giant with a sling and a stone or feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Philippians 4, verse 11, Paul writing, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was imprisoned. And for a long time, the church had not contributed financially toward his situation, but he wasn't begrudging of them. He wasn't feeling like he was forgotten because he found contentment in God. And in due time, he was glad to receive a gift from their hand. But he's like, but guys, I've learned that in every situation, wherever I am to be content, whether I'm in wealth or in poverty, whether I'm full or hungry, there's contentment in Christ. There's peace found in him. And by Jesus, we are enabled to be content, to love one another, to forgive each other, to find rest in him. These are all things that are beyond us. These are impossible for us. But through Christ, we can do all things who strengthens us. 
Now, when Joseph woke up that morning, it's likely he had no idea what that day would hold. He didn't know that this was the day he would get this call to quickly come out of the dungeon and to appear before Pharaoh. Had a shave, new clothes. He's standing before the monarch. From a human standpoint, he's 30 years old at this time. He was a man without a future. He was 30 years old, foreigner in Egypt. He had no real qualifications, no career, no money, no property, no family connections. But God had plans for him to save nations and to deliver people from death. His own people. People that weren't even in Egypt. God was planning on saving through what he would do through Joseph. God was doing a work in Joseph during that time to teach him to rely on the Lord, to look to him, to know that it's not in me to do these things, but God will give an answer of peace. So when it doesn't seem like, like the song we were singing today, when it doesn't seem like God's doing anything, he's not, we don't see him working. We don't feel that he's working. The cure for misery and worry is this, knowing Jesus and seeking him because he's the one who opens doors none can shut. He shuts doors none can open. And I can't speak for Joseph in prison. We're not given any insight into what he went through. Um, but in my own life, the waiting times have been growing times because that's when we're forced to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God to sustain us, to provide for us. And so that season of waiting isn't to, to teach you that you are sufficient, but to realize I am not and I will never be ready or able to do what God is telling me to do on my own. But through Christ, all things are possible. We can serve the Lord. We can do his will only because he's called us and graciously helps us. That's the only way. And that's where Joseph had arrived. It is not in me, but God will give an answer of peace. So he has this confidence, despite the circumstances of his life, that God would give an answer of peace, of shalom, of wholeness, of wellness. And Joseph made a distinction between the trials he endured, the pain, the cruelty of his, even his own brothers, and the goodness of God. He didn't question God's goodness because he suffered. He didn't allow being a slave for all that time or the fact he was wrongly imprisoned to be a blight upon God's character towards him. Now, not all believers can keep this view. Think of Naomi, right, returning from Moab. She was 10 years or so in Moab. She's lost her husband and her two sons. And she returns to Bethlehem, and they're like, is this Naomi? She's like, don't call me Naomi. That means lovely, pleasant, delightful, and friendly. She's like, don't call me that. Call me Mara, because God has dealt bitterly with me. Mara means bitter. This was an embittered woman because of the things she suffered. She was bitter, and she's like, don't even call me by that name, because it's not indicative of who I am. I am bitter. Not thinking, so she was focused on everything that she had lost, everything that she left behind in Moab, not even thinking about her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who was better to her than seven sons who adored her and was loyal to her. So her mind was distorted. She, she was just focused on the losses, not on God and his grace to her. Joseph, he could have justified bitterness and resentment from a human view, 
But to nurse a grudge against others and against God, it's plainly sin. That is sin. There's no reasonable excuse for a Christian to be bitter because Jesus is our peace. He has joined us to himself by, his, by faith in him. We're made whole. We find rest for our souls. So when, not if, when you are bitter, it is good for us to realize, I need to repent of this bitterness and this grudge I'm having and this judgmental attitude I have towards God and the things he's allowed. Because if we are angry at God, it shows that we are in disapproval of him. We are sitting in the judgment seat of God and we're saying he's done wrong as if we are right. We need to repent and be filled with the living water of the Holy Spirit again because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Peace. Jonah was furious when God did not destroy the Ninevites. His was a case of not my expectations weren't met. His expectations were met. That was the reason why he was angry is because he's like, God, I didn't want to preach to these people because I know you are merciful, gracious, and compassionate. And you spared them when I want them dead. So he's angry at God. This is a prophet. And then God was gracious not only to the Ninevites to spare them, but in pulling Jonah aside and speaking gently to him, reasoning with him, saying, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Yes, it's right for me to be angry, even to death. Jonah, is it right? Uh, we don't know what Jonah came to, but when we are angry, when we are bitter, we should do what Joseph did. He avoided the, bit, the pitfalls of bitterness and anger towards God or man. As it's written in Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God keeps his people in perfect peace. Our responsibility is to seek the Lord and to trust him, to submit to him. Joseph trusted God and he had peace. He was confident, you know, Pharaoh, God's going to give you an answer of peace. Have you learned to do this in trouble, to fix your mind on God? Or have we justified cohabitating with anger and bitterness as an abusive partner that, that forces us, that pushes us, that compels us to do what we do and say what we say? Genesis 41, 17, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river, Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good, and behold, seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Pharaoh now explains his dreams that we've read to Joseph. We're given a little more detail here that these gaunt cows, they weren't just ugly, but they were the ugliest he had ever seen. It's like, I've never seen cows that look like these. They were just, just ugly I don't know that I've ever seen an ugly cow. I think cows are pretty, 
amazing, but they, these were ugly. And, and he says, when they ate the fine cows, it was as if they hadn't eaten anything. They were just as gaunt and ugly as they ever were. So we weren't told that before. And so these good cows being consumed by the, and the good wheat being consumed by the bad, that there was no change, even though they had consumed what was good. Now, the, magi the magicians, those wise men in Pharaoh's day, they would use incantations or spells in an attempt to control the gods, to tell them what to say, but they were at a loss. They're like, we, we have no idea. We don't know. I love that God cannot be controlled by witchcraft or spells or the occult. There, there's, he can't even be known except he reveal himself to us. Like, he is completely over that. He's not swayed by it. He's not blinded by it. He has all power, and we can trust him. The God who created the tongue, he also speaks. And he spoke here through Joseph in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass." These dreams had baffled Pharaoh. He's like, all the wise men, they have no idea what, what he's saying. It is understood and interpreted by Joseph by the power of the living God he served. And I love the fact that in Pharaoh's courts and even on his dress, he was wearing and there were images and sculptures of his gods. And none of them could tell you one thing about these dreams. They were all silent. There was nothing coming from them. But God, he reveals secrets. He knew what he meant. And through these two dreams, God showed Pharaoh what he was about to do. And they were basically affirming the same message. The seven good cows and good heads were seven years. The seven thin cows were also seven years. And the blighted grain, it meant seven years of famine. So there'd be seven years of plenty, really plentiful. But then famine, that's so severe that you wouldn't even remember how good things had been. And that was shown by that no visible change of the thin cows when they ate the healthy cows. And he said, God's established it. He is going to bring it to pass. There's no avoiding this. There was nothing that Pharaoh could do to increase his years of plenty or to avoid the coming famine. It was set. What mattered was did Pharaoh believe the message from the Lord and would he take wise action in preparing for it? Now, it's so important that we, as people who believe and know God, we attribute both uh, plenty and famine to him. Even when it's years, he rules and reigns over all. There's this proud, really persistent tendency in people when things are good to say, I must be doing something right. Or we see someone else and go, he must be doing something right. She must be doing something right. Or when things are bad, we say, what, what did I do to deserve this? And it's like, well, if you, if you got what you deserved, what is that? Well, eternity being tortured in hell because of my sin. I deserve that punishment. So it's not about 
whether I did something good to deserve something, like, oh, I must be doing something right. God always does what's right, even when it's famine, because he will accomplish his purposes. He's a gracious, merciful provider. There are so many things that God has established and he does that we don't understand. And we can be content knowing that we'll never understand it. Job had no idea why he suffered. Now his friends thought they knew. Oh, Job, you must have sinned to have this. And God spoke up and said, no, I'm going to expose you for your folly. Job is a righteous man. He's going to pray for you and you'll be healed. So God knew what he was doing, that he was going to show himself as gracious and compassionate. And we can make the mistake of embracing those years of plenty so we can be set for life. Or we try to avoid the famine rather than embracing Jesus who is our life the one who is with us, who provides everything we need in real time, godliness and plenty. You know, we can fret and worry about things we cannot change when God would have our faith grow and our perspective shift to see him sitting on the throne with Satan crushed under his feet. Now there's things that God has established that only he can, uh, I guess, do. It won't be ended until he ends them, like this world that he's created. The number of our days, we can't prolong them, we can't reduce them. It's like we're called to be good stewards of the earth, but we can't save the earth, and we can't save ourselves. Worrying, you can't add a millimeter to your height, you can't add a day to your lives by worrying. But knowing our days are numbered by God, and each one is a gift, it's how we use them that matters. So you don't need to know how many days you have left to live today for the glory of God. You have to know that, oh, I've got 3,000 days to go. It's not the, the amount of days we have left. It's God who's to motivate us. It's God who guides and directs us because we're seeking him. And some, they obsess over what they know is coming. Others obsess about what they cannot know. It cannot be known. Now, Jesus, he taught his disciples, take no thought about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. So by faith in Jesus, all that pertains to life on earth, godliness for eternity, we find that provided in Jesus. Now, a lot of us, we'd just be content with what should I do in these last days? Like, what, give me a to-do list so I can do it. Now, when I have a to-do list, I just want to see it done. So I don't have to do it, and I don't have to think about it. Like, I take the list and I throw it away. It was a to-do list. It's done. Okay. It's that set it or forget it thing. Rather than constantly relying upon Jesus and being guided by him, who guides us every step by his spirit. God's desire is more than just to convey information to us. We'd be content with information sometimes. We go, if I just knew, I'd be okay. God knows better. We need more than just knowledge. We need to know him because he is our life. And we go, oh, I'll just do what you say. Well, how could we unless he helps us? We need him. And he wants us to know that we need him. And so he allows famine and plenty so that we'll, and a dream so that we'll look to him to know what to do. So faith in God 
is to govern how and why we do things, confident he will bring an answer of peace. There are things we can't control, but the one thing we can do is yield to him and submit. So turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. Just a little background. Daniel and his three Jewish companions, they were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. They were educated in Babylon. And by God's grace, they were found 10 times wiser than the others. Their other classmates or trainees. Nebuchadnezzar, he, like Pharaoh, had a dream that troubled him. And he demanded the wise men, the astrologers, come and give him the dream. So notice, Nebuchadnezzar didn't forget the dream. He's like, all right, I'm going to do a little test for you fellows. If you say you know by the power of the gods what the interpretation is, then it should be no problem at all for you to tell me what I dreamed. So tell me the dream. They go, oh, king, that's a difficult thing. No one's ever asked any wise man this. Tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He's like, I knew it. You were going to try to buy time. I want to know if you're charlatans or not. That's what he's, that was what he's getting at. And then they, uh, they go, this is unreasonable. This is a ridiculous request. And he's like, all right, well, then I'm going to kill you. So he put out the word to kill all the wise men of the land. And guess what? Daniel and his three companions were included among them. And so they asked time, they asked for a day to seek the Lord in prayer, and God revealed that dream. Daniel 2.19, it says, Then the secret, secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Daniel gets this revelation. He blesses God. He praises God for revealing the dream. And what God told Daniel was not as important as who God is. And that's something that Daniel uh, praises God for, that God is a God of gods. He's eternal. He's the sole possessor of wisdom, that he gives uh, might to those who trust him and seek him. God is the one who keeps time rolling on. He's the one who changes seasons. He removes kings. He raises up kings. Like we see the power of God in what he does. And he extols the character and majesty of God who does such things, who reigns over all the governments of the earth. It didn't matter if he was in Jerusalem, in the temple, blessing the Lord, or if he's in the Babylonian court beside a, a murderous king. He praised God who revealed this dream to him, that he rules over the spiritual and the physical realms. So God, he brings a prisoner before Pharaoh. He reveals a dream to a Jewish captive in a Babylonian court. To this day, God is a revealer of secrets. He knows what's darkness. Light is in him. And so it could be a dream that troubles you, a circumstance, an illness, or an uncertain future where you're like, I don't know what to do. And we think just, what can I do? Well, knowing Jesus is where you will find peace. That's where we find rest for our souls. And God just doesn't offer us a feeling of peace. He, Jesus is our peace. That's a huge difference. It's not like him just giving us something that we can now tuck away and have. He gives us himself. 
and in him is life, everything we need. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Today we live by the power of the resurrected Christ, Jesus, who makes us whole, who is our life. So instead of looking for peace in this world, looking for prosperity in our future, trying to prolong those years of plenty and avoid the famine, in looking to him, we find everything abundantly provided. Because there's nothing in this world that will make us secure. We have security, we have confidence in Christ who works in us what is well-pleasing in his sight. So let us take confidence in him that he will, he has given us not just an answer of peace, but he is our peace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us Christ, that we have been born again through faith in Jesus and that we have been made new. And even so, Lord, you know how much room there is for us to grow and our faith to develop, that we would not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you so you might direct our paths. I pray, Lord, we would not be wise in our own eyes, but we would fear you. We would trust you. We would follow you, Jesus, who is our peace. Thank you for breaking down that middle wall of separation, for uniting both Jew and Gentile as your own chosen people, that we can uh, be part of the body of Christ that we can be accepted and forgiven and receive your love and grace and offer it freely to others. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of the impossible and those things that we cannot do, and it's not in us. You put in us by the power of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Lord, we thank you that you have changed us. You, are tra you have transformed us, and I pray we would surrender to you. We would submit to you. We would submit to you our anger, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, and we would rejoice in you and all that you've done, all that you are for us being our life. So, Lord, I pray that you would minister your truth to our hearts, that we would take steps of faith in obedience to what you've revealed and that we would glorify and praise you, our confidence not in ourselves or in anything but Jesus, our Savior and King. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.